The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Amen. Well, this this past week, uh, I I stumbled upon an article that was titled 15 Life-Changing Inventions That Were Created by Mistake. And and so now we don't have time to go through all 15, but I thought I'd pick out a few. And and the title can be maybe a little misleading because I question maybe how life-changing some of these are. But nonetheless, they're very interesting, at least they were to me. So insert Exhibit A uh, with, with the invention of... The Slinky. Now, again, I don't know how life-changing the Slinky is, but uh, but Richard Jones, he was a naval engineer, and he was trying to design a meter that, that would monitor the power output on a naval battleship. And, and so while trying to develop this meter, he, Jones, he was working with some tension springs, and then when one, when one of them all of a sudden fell onto the ground, and that, and that spring kept bouncing from place to place after it hit the ground, and thus the Slinky, this life-changing Slinky, was born. Well, well, another invention that maybe is actually important and, and, and could be life-changing for some, it, it's penicillin. And, and so Sir Alexander Fleming, he was a scientist who was in search of the end-all, be-all wonder drug to cure all diseases. So you think, okay, you know, he, he might, how, how is this by mistake then? However, though, it wasn't until Fleming threw away his experiments that he, was, that he found what he was looking for. And so while he was doing other experiments, Fleming noted a contaminated Petri dish that he had discarded that contained mold. But, but this mold, it was dissolving all the bacteria around it. And so when he gave the mold to himself, he learned that it contained a powerful antibiotic, which we now know today to be penicillin. Or, or, or how about this one? Now, now, you might, again, you might question the life-changing, whether this one is life-changing, but I think it definitely is. And that is the potato chip. Um, George Crumb, a, a chef at the Cary Moon Lake House in Sarasota Springs, he was trying to make a plate of fried potato as a side. But, but one day, a customer kept sending this plate back, insisting that the potatoes weren't thin enough for him. And so the chef, he lost his temper. And so and kind of out of spite, he, he sliced the potatoes so insanely thin and fried them until they were hard as a rock. But, but to the chef's chagrin... That customer loved these thin and hard potato pieces, and he wanted more. And so thence the life-changing invention of the potato chip was born, and praise be to God for that. No, I'm kidding. But uh, now, now, okay, so jokingly, but I think we can all agree that this one is actually a life-changing invention, and that is the pacemaker. And so John Hobbs, he was an electrical engineer who was conducting research on hypothermia, and he was trying to use radio frequency to heat, uh, to restore the heat within the body. But during his experiment, he realized that if a heart stopped beating due to cooling, it could be started again by artificial stimulation. And, and so this realization, he didn't intend to invent the pacemaker, but this realization led to the pacemaker being Invented. And so a final one, maybe you thought I've shared too many, uh, but the final one this morning uh, is the invention of the microwave. Now, can I get an amen that this is most definitely and life changing invention, particularly for all the men in the room. Uh, but uh, but Percy Spencer, he was an engineer with the defense contractor Raytheon, and he was conducting a radar radar related research project within a new vacuum tube. 
However, while he was doing this, Spencer realized that the candy bar in his pocket began to melt during his experiments, which probably isn't so good for old uh, Percy either. Uh, but, but regardless, he, he then put popcorn into the machine, and when it started to pop, he knew that he had a re- revolutionary device on his hands. Now, 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 while all these inventions, which many of us use today, were created by mistake, why, why do I share these stories? I share that to contrast it with this truth. And that is this, the origin of your creation story as a Christian, as one who is in Christ. It couldn't be further from the truth. You didn't become a Christian by mistake or by happenstance. You didn't just happen to wake up one day and choose to follow Jesus. No, do you remember what we talked about last week? You were made alive by God, in the story of your Christian life, of your life after trusting in Christ alone for salvation, it isn't a figure it out as you go kind of life. No, before your conversion and before time even began, our text this morning says that God has prepared a life of good works for you. The question God's word puts before us then is this morning is this. Will you walk in the good works God has prepared for you. And so this morning from our one verse, we will see uh, three things, three things this morning. We'll see the theology, the identity, and the activity of the Christian life. So the theology, the identity, and the activity of the Christian life. And then within those headings, we will see these three key truths. And if you're taking notes, the first truth is this. That we are saved by grace for good works. We are saved by grace for good works. Secondly, we are saved in Christ as God's masterpiece. And then finally we'll see, and I'm giving you my outline uh, from the beginning. Finally we'll see that we are saved to walk in what God has prepared. So first, we are saved by grace for good works. This is the theology of the Christian life. And so uh, when, 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 uh, when Emily and I went and our kids, when we lived in Kansas City, we, we befriended some, uh, some of the Afghans who lived there. Uh, we started a ministry there serving, uh, trying to serve the Afghan community there in Kansas City. And so a part of this ministry, what we would do, we would just go to houses and we would have lunch. And through lunch, we would sit down, have a conversation. And, and we, our prayer was that through these conversations, we would be able to share the gospel with these families. And God gave amazing opportunities to do so. Uh, but but one time when we were we were sitting down at this uh, at this um, uh, these two uh, people's house, we were talking about I, I had spent some time in Afghanistan, and so I was showing them pictures of of how I, I was dressed in the native the native dress. It's called the peron tombon, and uh, but but I, I showed them pictures, and and we we're laughing, or whatever. And so this this guy Muhammad, he decided, you know what, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm, I'm going to put mine on. I'm going to go put, and put my peron tombon on. And so he does that. He comes down. And, uh, and so you, you, you need to know. So in Dari, um, the word makbul, it means like beautiful, handsome, very nice. In the word mazadar, it means delicious. Okay. So you have these two words. So we're eating, we're eating lunch. So I had food in my mind. And so he comes down the stairs and he, he went in his peron tombon. And I said, Muhammad, mazadarasti, which means Muhammad, you are delicious. And I, oh no, oh my goodness, what did I do? I meant to say, Muhammad, Magbulasti, right? Very handsome. 
But, 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 but the, so I, why do I share that story with you? The, the words we use, they're, they're very important, aren't they? they? They can make the difference between a nice compliment and an uncomfortable misunderstanding. The, the words we use, they're important. Proverbs 18.21 says this, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so in our verse this morning, there is indeed incredible, life-changing, eternity-setting, despair-destroying, joy-filling, works-righteousness-removing power in one word. Look at it with me where Paul says this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And notice this word right here. Keyword for good works. Just think with me, church, how incredibly different your life would be if that one preposition for was swapped out with that preposition by. If our verse this morning read something like this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus by good works. Do you see the words we use? There's power in words. And so listen, this is the reality for billions of people who follow in our world who follow Islam Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Judaism, and other religions. And one pastor even said, a pastor in Morocolum, he said that, that even secular humanism that pervades our modern culture today, it follows this similar paradigm that we are saved by works. But our verse this morning in our sermon, in our sermon, our verse this morning, in our sermon this morning, it's just a continuation really of last week's sermon. It's more of a part two to our sermon last week. And so let's just do a quick recap. Paul talks about how before Christ, if you remember last week, how before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We, we weren't merely good people who made the occasional bad mistake. No, Paul says that, that the proper and the right description of us is that we were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Following after the sinful doings, do you remember the sinful doings, the sinful desires, and the sinful depravity of the world, of our flesh, and the devil? We, we were sinners justly and hopelessly condemned to an eternity in hell, right? Except for these, remember those two glorious words. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so we recapped that for this key point, that that last Phrase is key. We were dead in our sins, but we have been made alive and we have been saved by grace, not by works, by grace. And so Paul hits this home right in in verses eight through nine, what I just read. And and you have seen you've been saved by grace, not by works. Paul wrote in Galatians two and and, uh, in three that we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So we are saved by grace, not by works. However, our text this morning says that while we are not saved by works, we are saved for good works. Do you you see how that subtle shift of language produces a radically different paradigm for the Christian life? Martin Luther, many of you know that name. I hope you do. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, 
who God used to reinstill the centrality of the gospel within uh, the doctrines of the church. The one who went toe to toe with the Catholic church to point out their heresy of works righteousness and to proclaim the true gospel of the Bible. That salvation is, you remember, yeah, if you've heard the five solas, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, from scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. This Martin Luther, the great champion of justification by faith alone, he said this regarding the role of good works in the Christian life. He said that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. One commentator, he put it this way, that no good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. And so listen, when it comes to our justification, and I, and I hope you're picking up on some of that doctrinal language, our, our justification, when we're made righteous before God because of what Christ has done for us, because his finished work has been imputed, has been counted to us. Does that make sense? When we have been justified, the, the, it goes something like this. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If we add Jesus plus our works to the equation, then it equals nothing. You can't hold on to both your works and the finished work of Christ at the same time. It must be Christ alone or not Christ at all. You must cling to Jesus Christ alone by faith for your salvation or else you're just trusting in your good works to commend you to God. And then then in reality, all you're doing is you're holding on to a life raft with a punctured hole in it. You may have the illusion of safety apart from Christ for a little while, but in due time, the air will run out and you will stand before God one day. And so I want to be clear that when it comes to our justification, our being made righteous before God's sight, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Our good works play nothing into that equation. It's all due to the finished work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. So while our works are not and cannot be the basis of our justification, at the same time, our good works help to serve as the validation of our sanctification, of our continual progressive growth into the image of Jesus, becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, are are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? Well, of course not. So, so he says this, so then every tree that bears good, every tree bears, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. In James, in his epistle, he's, he puts it this way. He says, this, so also faith by itself, it, if it does not have works, it's what? It's dead, right? In other words, A tree that's alive and healthy will naturally produce fruit. And a tree that is dead will naturally not produce fruit. And so the fruit isn't the basis of whether that tree is dead or alive. It's the indication of whether that tree is dead or alive. Does that that distinction make sense? We are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But that faith that saves is never alone. We, we have seen this morning from our text that we are saved by grace for good works. But secondly, this morning, we, we see that we are saved in Christ as God's masterpiece. Look at, look at verse 10 with me, where Paul says this, For we are his workmanship created in 
Christ Jesus. Now, now that word for workmanship in the Greek, it's, it's the word poiema. Does, does that ring a bell for anybody? Does that, do you, poiema. What, what, what's the English word that sounds similar to that? That's right, misread a poem, right? Poem. And some of your translations might say, for we are his handiwork. Or, or we are God's masterpiece. And I think the NLT's translation here of poema, it describes the essence of the word that we are the masterpiece of God. I want you right now just to think about those moments and, and those experiences in your life when your breath was taken away by the beauty of God's creation. So, so maybe if, you, if, you, if it's uncomfortable for you to close your eyes, that's fine. But, but if you want to, maybe just close your eyes and, and recall those moments when you're in God's creation and you're just astounded by the beauty of it all. For, for me, I think about the vividness of some of those majestic Oklahoma sunsets, right? Where, where we, the, 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 the dark oranges and the blues and the purple hues all blending together. Or, or the lushness of the rolling mountains surrounding me while I was hiking in Myanmar. Or, or the vastness of the ocean while aboard a cruise ship. Or, or the ruggedness and, and stoic views atop the massive 14ers in Colorado. 14ers, those are mountains over 14,000 feet, right? When you are atop a mountain over 14,000 feet and you look down into the valley, you feel quite small. Finally, I think about those times, right, when I was free from all light pollution and I looked above and gazed at the night sky littered with stars as far as the eye could see. Whatever that may be for you, listen, despite the unspeakable beauty and majesty and splendor that is displayed throughout all of God's creation, Paul says this, for we, you and me, we are God's masterpiece. Not the sunset, not the oceans, not the mountains, not the stars, you me, we. Or maybe to put it another way, Paul is saying here, for we are the poetry that God has written. Just, just think about that and let that truth sink in for you. Indeed, the first lines of poetry in all the Bible were written right after God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1, 27, God, uh, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning, God's poetry has been written with humanity as the subject. But, but notice that prepositional phrase that Paul uses here in verse 10. Again, the power and the importance of a single word, right? That we are God's masterpiece How does Paul qualify that, though? For those who are what? Created in Christ Jesus. So do you remember that there's that phrase again, right? In Christ, in Christ Jesus. We've seen that probably 10 to 15 times already through our study of Ephesians. So do you remember last week that the the plumbing analogy, right? The two pipes becoming one by the the means of that coupling. And so are are they two pipes or are they one pipe? Well, they're both. They're two pipes, but the two have become one. They've been united together. And so what is in one flows to the other. We, We were created in Christ Jesus. We have been united to him by faith. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter two, 
He uses the first three verses to deconstruct any sense of self-worth that would derive from our own good works. How many of you are feeling really good in the first part of last week's sermon? Probably not many of us, myself included. But here, in verse 10, Paul is not deconstructing our self-worth. Rather, he's rebuilding our self-worth to show that it derives not from our works, but our self-worth derives from God's work within us for we are his his masterpiece created in christ jesus listen church apart from christ jesus we are objects of his wrath do you remember that from last week but in christ jesus we are the subjects of his masterpiece do you see the power of the gospel and what Christ Jesus has done for you. A greater work happened when God made you a new creation in Christ Jesus than what took place in the first scenes of the Bible. If you have repented of your sins and have trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, if you have been made a new creation in Christ Jesus by the saving work of God, then listen, you are the crowning jewel of all of God's creation. Do you know who you are, Christian? Zephaniah 3.17, it puts it this way. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But I tried to emphasize it while I read that. Do you notice the tense that this verse is written in? It's written in the future tense, right? It's an Old Testament verse written in the future tense. Zephaniah was looking forward to the future salvation that would come from God for his people. But listen, brothers and sisters, this future promise is now a present reality in Christ Jesus. And so it is right for us now to read this beautiful verse in the present tense. So just listen, maybe even close your eyes and let this truth wash over you this morning. That the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who has saved. In Christ, he is rejoicing over you with gladness. He is quieting you by his love. And he is exulting over you with loud singing. Because you are in Christ. Listen, I know some of you struggle and suffer from a low sense of self-esteem and self-worth. But the reason you struggle with this is because you're still trying to attach your self-worth to your own works. You you do well one week, right? And and so your self-worth is riding high. But then the next week, you fail Or you disappoint someone or maybe others say hurtful things that denigrate you. And so what happens? Your self-worth isn't riding high, but what? It's down in the dumpsters, in the dumpster. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ, your self-worth is no longer attached to your work. Your self-worth is now firmly fixed in the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
And so because of this truth, because of the gospel, you have now become the beautiful, poetic masterpiece, the crowning jewel of all of God's creation. When that truth sinks in, then your self-worth will be firmly fixed in what Jesus has done for you. We'll get there in Romans 8, but, but Paul would put it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding on your behalf? As we study in, on our Wednesday night study, your approval and your acceptance is all we need for everlasting joy, right? Our self-worth is firmly fixed and our value is firmly fixed in what Jesus has done for us in the finished work of Christ, not in our own works. We are saved in Christ as God's masterpiece. And finally this morning, we are saved to walk in what God has prepared. And so this is the activity of the Christian life. We've looked at the theology of the Christian life, right? The, the identity of the Christian life and now the activity of the Christian life. We are saved to walk in what God has prepared. So I'm going to read verse 10 again. And, and as I read it, notice with me the adjective, the qualifier that Paul uses to describe our works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works. Now, it goes without saying that these good works, right, they're obviously contrasted to what? To bad works, to evil works. But what might surprise you is that the Bible's description of good works, it's only used for those works that Christians do. Now, now don't mishear me. I'm not saying that only Christians can do good things. That's obviously not true. Many non-Christians are loving husbands, loving wives, loving fathers, loving mothers, and upstanding citizens in our country today. And some of the most outwardly moral and ready to serve people you'll ever meet are Mormons, right? And so I'm not saying that non-Christians can't do good things. But, But scripture's criterion for what constitutes good works, it stems from what is the source of these works, right? Does that, does that make sense? Our, our good works are, are classified either, as, our works are classified as good or bad based upon the source of those works. So in John chapter three, verse 19, and I'm gonna plug it every single week, church. Tomorrow, if you're doing our two-year Bible reading plan, tomorrow you will be reading John chapter three. And, and so I encourage you if, you, if you haven't yet started, I encourage you, just, just start, just jump right on in and make tomorrow's Bible reading day one for you. And so we have we have papers in the back of in, in the foyer um, for you to follow along with the Bible reading plan. It's easy. Two chapters a day, two chapters a day. You can read one in the morning, one in the evening. But I encourage you to consider joining with us as a church to for us to read together the Bible in two years. All right. With that plug in there, uh, John, chapter three, verse 19, Jesus says this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness Rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. And so you have two sources for these works. Light and darkness. And so then you have two adjectives used to describe these works. Good and evil. And in Mark first, uh, chapter 10 verse 18. Jesus says that no one is good. Again that key word good. No one is good except God alone. And so listen, church, the good works in God's sight are the works that he 
the only true good one has prepared for us. Does that make sense? Or to put it another way, the description of our works is good because the source of our works is God. As Christians, we're not inherently better than anyone else. There is good within us, but it's because God is at work within us to produce that good. Does that make sense? We don't produce good works because we're good people. We produce good works because we're God's people. And because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so because of that, we don't or we rather we shouldn't get puffed up with pride. Instead, when you really understand this truth that your good works are a result of God's work within you, it will lead you to true humility and to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Our good works are from God. And our good works are to be done back to God. That is to say, we are to do good works for his glory. We don't do these good works to make us look great. We don't do good deeds for the Instagram feed. And maybe some of you are wondering what in the world is Instagram. Don't worry about it. Just let that one fly right over your head. But we don't do good deeds for the Instagram feed. Rather, we do them to display not our greatness, but the greatness of our God. Jesus would put it this way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. Good works. Our, our works are from God. They're to be done to God. But also the Bible teaches that they are to be done under God. That is under his reign and his authority. We are to do good works, not how we ourselves try to, to define what these works are, but rather in accordance with his will and under his authority. Does that make sense? Now, so, okay, with all of that established, where our good works come from, they come from God. Where, where, why they should be done, they should be done for God's glory. And how they should be done, they should be done under God's reign and his authority. I, I now want to ask you this question. And we get to the practical aspects of our sermon. And, and, it, and it's not a rhetorical question. Now, I don't want you to answer out loud, but I do want to, you to answer within your own heart this morning. What good works has God prepared beforehand for you? Personally, what has God called you to do for his glory and for the good of others? What, what, what are you doing in your life? Maybe right now that needs to be brought under the authority of Christ. Husbands, are, are you loving and serving your wives to the glory of Christ as Christ loved his church? Wives, are you submitting to and respecting your husbands to the glory of Christ as the church does to Jesus? Dads and moms, is it your highest aim in parenting to form Christ within your child? For those of you who are single, are you living with a singular ambition and desire? Or as Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians 7, a singular anxiety to serve Christ wholeheartedly and without reserve. But, but not just with the responsibilities you already have in life. Not, not just doing good works with the responsibilities you have. How about those things you, are, you believe God is calling you to do that you have yet to do? How is God calling you to utilize the skills and giftings that he has uniquely equipped you with? To serve him by serving others. What, what are your dreams in life? What, what are your dreams for this church? 
Do your dreams and your aspirations in life, do they center upon how you might serve the Lord more? Or your dreams and aspirations, maybe, are they centered upon yourself? I have quoted this verse in in previous sermons, but I think it's one of the foundational verses for the Christian life. And so you might hear me quote this 10 times a year. Uh, But it's 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Paul says this, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Listen, church, that's a good verse to memorize and to pray regularly through for yourself and for your fellow church members. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. It's this idea that we are to live for Christ by serving others without regard first for ourselves. Now, now I know that there can be a danger of living this way, right? That, that it can lead to burnout and not nourishing your own, your own soul and other unhelpful things. But listen, while, while that's one ditch that we should avoid, I, th- I think some, maybe many of us, are, are not prone to veer into that ditch. Maybe we're prone to veer into the other side of the road, the other ditch. And that is to serve, only serve others after we have first considered ourselves. Now, now, I don't say that to beat you up or for any specific reason, but that's just our natural propensity as humans, right? To serve, yes, but not to the point of sacrifice. Yet the way of good works is the way of the cross. It's daily, daily dying to yourself so that you may now live to do good works for others without regard for yourself. It's a life that is poured out, not a life that is preserved. It's, it's a life that is marked by giving of yourself, not a life concerned with getting more for yourself. And it's a life of never-ending joy rather than never-ending dissatisfaction. The good life is a life filled with good works, good works that are done from God for God's glory, under God's reign, for the good of others. And so I ask you again, what are the good works that God is personally calling you to in your life? For those of you who attended our potluck a few weeks ago, and, and I'm in the process of organizing those ministry teams, but if you attended that potluck, and if you haven't, please connect with me, and I, I, I want to share with you the ministry plan and vision for our church for these next two years. But for those of you who were there, you know that there are plenty of upcoming opportunities for you to serve in this church. How is God calling you to serve in his kingdom without regard first for yourself? To see lives transformed by the gospel in our neighborhood and among the nations. So now I know when when I press that question, some of you might start to be filled with anxiety and maybe some paralysis, right? Because you know you should be doing something, but you just don't know what you should be doing. And if that is you, I I want to exhort you from our text this morning. What does Paul tell us to do? Just start walking, right? Just start saying yes to the doors that God has opened before Start praying that God would open your eyes to the good works that he has already prepared beforehand. What does that word beforehand mean, right? It's tied to verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 1. Before the ages began, God has prepared these good works for you. So just pray, God, open my eyes to the good works that you've prepared for me. 
and just start walking. Listen, God doesn't reveal his personal will for your life all at once. You know, some, some we talk about what is God's will for my life? And when theologians talk about the will of God, they talk about the, 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 um, the secret will and the revealed will, the, the will of command, the will of decree, and, and these big words. But let me just simplify it for you maybe a little bit. What is God's will for your life? There are two wills. It's his will of obedience, and it's his will of opportunity. God's will of obedience and God's will of opportunity. And listen, church, 99% of God's will is found in that first one, the will of obedience. And as we obey what God has already revealed to us in his word, as we walk in the good works of sanctification, of, of saying no to sin, of saying yes to Christ's lordship in our, our lives, as we submit to God's word, and as the Bible becomes to be the authority for our life, then he will reveal that remaining 1% of his will of opportunity for you. Does that make sense? If you don't know what to do, just start walking. Walk in the will. Walk in God's will of obedience, and he will reveal his will of opportunity for your life. In his book, Just Do Something, and I'll end with this. In his book, Just Do Something, a liberating approach to finding God's will, Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he says this. If we had done something, almost anything really, faithfully and humbly for God's glory in our life, and he's talking about when we get to the end of our life. When we do something for God's glory, we could have made quite an impact. But if we do nothing, because we're always trying to figure out that perfect something, when it comes to show what we did for the Lord, we will not have anything. Don't, don't try to search for that perfect something God has out there for you to do. Obey him and what he has already placed before you. And in these moments of uncertainty and maybe even confusion, church, Emily, Emily and I, and I'm running long, so I won't share this story, but Emily and I, we've walked through this past year, year and a half, a time of, of, of uncertainty, of, of thinking we're going to the mission field, right? And, and then God prohibiting that through, through uh, some stuff going on with Isaiah medically. And so we went into this season of, of God, what are you calling us to do? What, what, what are we to do with our lives? It, it felt as though our lives were upended, and what did God in effect say? Just keep walking. Just keep walking in what I place before you. And so church, in those moments of uncertainty and confusion, we must really believe in God's sovereignty, trust his providence. And in those seasons of waiting, continue walking. Walk in the good works that he has prepared before you and that he has placed in front of you. Listen, church, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.